Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 24 minutes to 10 o'clock. Chris, lovely to chat to you. Good morning. Good morning, Reedy. Thank you so much. Okay, we have had um, some questions over the years about how we develop our our sense of smell and and so on you've got some new information for us yes Uh, it turns out that if your sense of smell is waning or has failed you then you should be nervous because you have a perhaps 39 40 percent chance that you may be dead within five years that's a Uh conclusion that's in a paper in plus one just in the last week from jay pinto who's a researcher at the university of chicago i spoke to him earlier this week and in essence, he recruited 3,000 people between the ages of 55 and 87, got his researchers to do a simple smell test. They presented these people with five common or garden household smells. They included things like the smell of peppermint, the smell of rose, the smell of leather, and asked them to identify them. People who did not pass the smell test, in other words, they got none right, about 39% of them were dead within five years at follow-up. And there was also what we call a dose-dependent relationship, In other words, the more answers that people got wrong in the smell test, the higher their odds of not surviving for five years after they did that test. Now, they don't know exactly why they're seeing this effect. They just know that it's real and it's based on very big numbers. So it would appear that the data are resilient and robust. They speculate that the fact that your sense of smell regenerates from stem cells across your life, if that fails you, it suggests that maybe it reflects an underlying failure of regenerative capacity in the body, perhaps because of ageing and your physiology failing you and the consequence may be that the smell is a reflection on what's going on in the rest of your body and therefore that's why you then peg out but it might be useful because the smell test takes about three minutes to do it's incredibly cheap and it means that doctors may then get a heads up on who may be at risk in the population and it may be that we can intervene and stop people dying Mm-hmm. Smell of death. Okay. So our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567 or double one double eight three zero seven zero two. What do you want to ask the naked scientist? Tando in Johannesburg. Hi. Hi, Rudy. How are you? Fine. Your question? Um, just a quick one. Um, I was wondering, um, you know your donated organ? Um, what is the lifespan of a donated organ? And if so, um, can you recycle it? Like how, how far can it go? Hmm. Hello, Tando. Well, this is a very important question Mm. because there's a huge shortage of donor organs around the world and obviously doctors want them to last as long as possible when they go into a recipient. It can vary enormously. Some organs last literally seconds to minutes. 
there's something called hyperacute rejection, which we should be able to prevent by screening people properly. But this is where there are things already present in a patient's bloodstream which will immediately begin to attack foreign tissue and destroy it. In a, in a good-going transplant, it's possible I've seen patients that, because we look after some of the transplant patients in, in my area because we do all of the testing for the various infections that can uh, occur during a transplant situation, and we've got patients who are 20 years out from a heart transplant and still doing well. So in the right setting and with good control of the immune system, then these organs can last for a very long time. On average, you might be looking at, say, a decade of good health with um, an, an average transplanted organ. The big problems with organ transplants are that you're putting tissue from a, an individual who is not you into your body. Because the individual tissues have genetic or, or markers on their surfaces that enable the body to tell that they're not you, then the body will try to attack the donated piece of tissue unless you try to switch off the immune system. And so we're running a sort of balancing act between turning off the immune system enough to stop the organ being damaged, but not so much that the person's immune system is disabled and they then become susceptible mm. to other kinds of overwhelming infections. And it's a fine balancing act. The drugs we have are relatively few in number, which means that you're trying to give people a sort of one-size-fits-all one situation. So it's not an ideal situation and not an ideal science at the moment but it's made enormous strides and it has changed people's lives people are alive now for decades yeah. who wouldn't have been let's go to is it zig in Renf in Randburg. hi hi really it's zig in Randburg. yes thanks very much and good morning chris i wanted to ask you a question which which we need to explore if we haven't got the answer to it yet why did dinosaurs grow to such gigantic Gigantic, enormous, huge proportions. How did they get to be so hugely bigger than anything that's alive today? And 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 did the plants of the day, the vegetation, also grow that big? I would have thought it should have, uh, if, it, if if dinosaurs anything to go by. And was this due to an oxygen surplus, um, which is the same thing? Okay, I think we do have the questions. Let's just uh, let's just give other people a chance. Why did uh, dinosaurs grow so large, and their vegetation, the plants around them? Uh, Chris. There's a number of possible reasons for this. One is competition. If everybody's big, if you're not big, then you have to have some other way of defending yourself. And an easy way to do that is just to grow bigger. So there was always a competition. If everyone's getting bigger and there's plenty of resources and the environment is ideal, then you're not losing energy trying to stay warm and so on because the planet's nice and hot. You can put all of your energy into growth and you can slowly evolve to become bigger and bigger and this enables you to defend yourself well. So there's an argument that says that one of the reasons dinosaurs were so big was because everyone was big and there was plentiful supplies of food and plants and other dinosaurs and that means you can have energy on tap and you can get very, very large. There are other bonuses of being very, very big, which is that if you are very, very big, then you can conserve heat quite well, so that even if you're cold-blooded, which some people speculate dinosaurs may have been, others not, because birds are living dinosaurs, birds are dinosaurs' direct uh, descendants, and they're warm-blooded, so we, we, we're not sure jury's out in this case, but one possibility if you're very, very big is that you conserve heat much better, because your surface area to volume ratio means that you 
uh, actually sh begin to struggle to lose heat at that sort of size. But if you have this extra enhanced body heat, you'll have a higher metabolic rate, and this makes you more active. So growing bigger means you can get around faster, even in colder temperatures, and therefore you can exploit more of the Earth's surface and so on. So it may be a combination of all of these factors, plentiful food, big competition, and this so-called gigantothermy. Being big makes you warm, so you have a high metabolic rate, and you can move fast, be agile, and fend off your competition. Hmm. Uh, let's go to James in Midrand. Hi. Good morning, Rudy. Good morning, Nathan. Uh, my name is James. Uh, quickly, when, when, when you kill a fly and it bleeds, uh, is that a real human being blood or not? And if it is uh, closer to that of human being, is it group A, group B, group O, or what is it? Hello, James. I, I wouldn't get tempted to do a transfusion from a fly. You've seen the movie, haven't you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, what flies are insects, they're arthropods and they have an exoskeleton. This means that they have the the tough bit of uh, a stiff bit of their body on the outside and suspended inside the stiff outer shell of the insect is a bag of juices and that's called a hemoseal. And it does have a haemoglobin-like chemical in it, in the same way that our blood transports oxygen using haemoglobin, flies do have this chemical, this haemoseal, this bag of material inside themselves, which when they pump their abdomen, they move around inside their bodies. They don't have blood vessels, but they do have this bag of fluid which they can squidge around. It's rather like you're having a water-filled balloon, and if you squeeze one end, the water goes to the other end. The fly is sort of doing a similar thing. They also have a network of tubes down the side of their abdomen called spiracles and tracheals. And by pumping their abdomen in and out, they push air in and out of these holes. And this brings the air into contact with this bag of juices, helping oxygen to move into it and waste products and CO2 to move out again. So they do have a blood supply. They do have a form of blood, but it's not the same as our blood. And I certainly wouldn't, um, wouldn't do a transfusion with it. They don't have blood groups because, believe it or not, flies don't have the same sort of immune system that we do. So it wouldn't be of benefit to them. Let's take a break and we'll take more of your calls. Stay with us. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 021-446-0567 or 11883-0702. Uh, let's go to Graham in Randburg. Hi. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. All I want to know uh, is, is it true that chemotherapy does not reach the brain? Hi, Graham. Mm -hmm. It would depend on the chemotherapy. The brain exists inside a special boundary which is called the blood-brain barrier. And this is a special structure. I, I'm slightly putting that word in inverted commas because it's, it's really a clever way that cells connect themselves together to form almost like a wall around the brain to create an environment which is the blood and an environment on the other side of that wall which is the brain environment. And the reason for having this structure is that the brain is a delicate organ, not just in terms of its physical strength and characteristics, but biochemically as well. And in order for the brain to work properly with its 100 billion or so nerve cells, you've got to maintain very rigid, very carefully controlled conditions. Otherwise, the nerve cells don't work properly, and then your brain doesn't work properly. The fact that you've got this border around the brain means that certain substances do get into the brain very, very well, and that's because there are doorways in that structure to let them in. There are what we call uptake transporters. Also, some substances which dissolve in fatty things 
get in very, very well. So many of the drugs that get into the brain that dissolve in fats, and I'm thinking about things like painkillers, antihistamines that you take to help you go to sleep or to suppress certain types of allergies, certain other medications like drugs to treat mood disorders, depression, schizophrenia and so on, they get in very well. Other chemicals don't get in very well because there's no transporter for them or they're not very fat-soluble. So therefore, chemotherapy agents, depending upon their chemical structure, will either get into the brain or not. And it depends on the structure of the chemical whether it will or not. Some agents definitely can get into the brain and and can be quite nasty. Others will be excluded from the brain by this blood-brain barrier. Thank you very much. Very interesting question indeed, Graham. Thank you for the call. Um, is it Ed in question of you want to challenge the smell study? Yes, I just wanted to uh, pass away. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, and good morning to both of you and our listeners. Uh, no, I just uh, wondered whether the Chris is maybe overstepping what would be scientific uh, boundaries in the sense that uh, a one experiment, one result is never a anything very indicative in science. You need to have at least several studies to back it up before we consider the thing seriously. And secondly, I just wonder if the, if the, the results of the study are not really just common sense. I mean, of course, as you, as persons' capacities to uh, feel reduce, that would be obviously an indication of reduced um, viability or liveliness and uh, resistance. And it seems uh, rather. Um, pedestrian to notice it. Uh, it's not such an earth-shaking idea. Okay, Chris? Hello, Ed. Mm. Well, first of all, let's look at the, the sample size, because you're right, it's very important to make sure that the numbers that are involved in any experiment are sufficiently large to make sure the effect is resilient and robust and isn't down to chance. Now, in this case, they studied 3,000 people and they weren't detecting the odd case. There were hundreds of people that fitted this particular uh, finding, and the result was highly statistically significant. In other words, the likelihood that this occurred owing to chance was not high. But again, they will be repeating it to actually make sure that what they're finding is genuine, and they're also going to try to get to the bottom of the neurological reason why the people are dying. The second point you make is, well, is this just common sense? Well, I had a very long chat to Jay Pinto. The, he's an ear, nose and throat surgeon who did the study. And I said to him, well, could it be that people who've lost their sense of smell, maybe they're just not because they don't enjoy food very much anymore because most of our taste is, in fact, smell, and so they're just undernourished. Mm. And because they're undernourished, they, they then are more likely to die. And he said, well, in fact, when we did our interviews, when we did the study to start with, there was no evidence that these people were in a different health status or had anything else going on at the time that could explain why they then subsequently died having failed the smell test. So at this stage, there are some questions, but I would also point out this has been subjected to peer review. It's been seen by other scientists in the field and then published in a prestigious and a reasonable journal, and that's PLOS One. So I'm comfortable with the study as it stands, mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable to report the study. I will be very interested to see what they find next as to the, the reason underlying this, because that's where they're going to take the study next. Thank you very much. Uh, Ed in Kirstenhof. Who came in first? Let's go to Charles in Ottery High. Yes, hello. Um, short and sharp, um, why do scorpions glow under a UV light? 
Oh, hello. Yes, hello, Charles. That's a very good question, and that's because they have a chemical in their skin, and it's I think it's cobalamin or something is the name of the chemical, and basically when you uh, bathe them in UV light, this particular molecule has the right chemical configuration that it can soak up the energy in UV, and it then converts the UV, which you can't see, into photons of light at the yellow end of the spectrum, so the scorpion appears to glow a yellowy colour. I think the chemical is cobalamin, but I, I might need to check that. Um, but, it, but it's the presence in their exoskeleton of that particular dye molecule, which is capable of, of interacting with ultraviolet rays in that way. Thank you very much. And uh, Bezel in Rondebosch, hi. Hello, I'll be brief. Um, historically, it's been thought that there was no interbreeding between humans and Neanderthals. New findings challenge this um, and recognize that interbreeding took place. It seems to have broadly occurred in the European area, the Europe area. What are the implications? Is this in, does this mean that there's any genetic differences across the planet? How does that work? Any idea about that? Well, it's not just Neanderthals, believe it or not. We mm -hmm. used to think, as you've said, that humans, modern humans, Homo sapiens, sapiens came out of Africa 55 or thereabouts 1,000 years ago and then spread northwards, eastwards and westwards and, and ultimately colonised the whole of the, the, what we're now dubbing the modern world. But they were not the first to come out of Africa and before then there'd been other types of humans, including, you know, pre-humans. And just in the last six months or so, we've seen a very interesting paper published on a group of individuals called the Denisovans, which were around until half a million years ago or so. Not many remains left of them, but they did populate many of the same areas that we did. And scientists have now successfully read the genetic fingerprint of these Denisovan people from some of their bony remains and been able to show that there are populations of modern humans living in Tibet, for example, who have inherited genes from these Denisovan people that enabled them to tolerate living at very high altitudes. So the implication of this interbreeding is that we have probably mixed our genes with these individuals and selected out the genetics that would have given us the greatest advantage. Earlier on in the year, there was also a study showing that there were chromosomes from Neanderthals that had persisted in modern humans and others that had definitely not persisted. And what this shows is that we have, when we've bred with these other populations, we have extracted from them those genes that they carried that gave us the greatest advantages because they, they would have been strongly selected by the environment they were growing up in in order to be robust and resilient in that environment. And as modern humans come along, they'll, they'll borrow the genes from those individuals that give them and endow them with similar sorts of advantages. So there's very strong genetic evidence now that we did interbreed with things, individuals like Neanderthals, but also mm -hmm. even more primitive forms of human like the Denisovans from before them. Very interesting questions coming through. Basil, thank you very much for that. Uh, is it Nabil in Bruma? It's Nabila. Hi, Nabila, Rudy. I beg your pardon. Welcome. No problem. How are you, Rudy? Fine. Uh, Chris, I have a quick question, please. We are, I'm in the, process of a, well, in the process of adopting a little girl who's HIV. And I want to know, can stem cells in the possible future be used to treat HIV in terms of trying to get a cure? And secondly, what are the new medications for children? Because they're such side effects. Are there any new developments in trying to get medications that are less hurtful to the body, um, but at the same time useful? There are always new medicines coming along for HIV. There are drugs in the pipeline all the time that people are, are 
working on. They're also working on the best ways to administer the medicines we do have to achieve optimal control of the disorder. Because, you know, this is a learning process, and the more data we get, the better we become at doing this, and the better combinations of drugs we uncover that work best with the fewest side effects. But you're right, there are side effects, and one need not try to kid oneself that, that it's going to mm. be easy. In terms of stem cell therapies... So far, there's been one case that's been published, it was in the New England Journal of Medicine about six or seven years ago, of an individual who developed a lymphoma, which is a kind of cancer of white blood cells. He underwent treatment for the lymphoma, and this treatment included a bone marrow transplant. And by sheer good fortune, the bone marrow transplant donor was an individual who carried a genetic mutation called CCR5 Delta 32. This change makes your white blood cells very hard for HIV to infect. Mm. As a result, when this person recovered from their bone marrow transplant, they now had white blood cells that were very difficult for HIV to infect. And to the surprise of the doctors who were treating this person, the HIV from which he had previously been suffering completely vanished. Now, this hasn't been repeated since because obviously it's a, a sheer good fortune that they found a donor that was a match for this person who also carried that particular HIV-resistant mutation. But what this means is perhaps in future we'll be able to take a person's cells, mm -hmm. engineer in this anti-HIV change into the cells, then put the cells back in, replacing their HIV-susceptible cells with HIV-resistant cells hmm. and therefore render them resistant to the disease. And, and this initial case that's been reported gives us hope that we might be able to achieve that. But as it stands, no-one's done this quite yet. Ha. Thank you, Nabila, and have a lovely weekend. And thanks for all your wonderful, wonderful questions. Chris, we speak again next week. And thank you for your answers. I forget to, to thank, oh, thank you. Thank hey. you. <laughs> so, take care, Reedy. Take bye care, bye. everyone. See you soon. Bye-bye. And we will podcast that conversation with The Naked Scientist.